So today we're cracking on with our journey through the classic era's 12th season and we're on to the Ark in Space. The TARDIS Cloister Bell. Imminent disaster. The Cloister Bell? Yes. What's that? Well, it's a sort of communications device reserved for wild catastrophes and sudden calls to man the battle stations. That's the Cloister Bell. Don't worry about that for now. It's not really terribly significant. The Cloister Bell? Oh, no. So, yes, the Ark in Space, um, also known as the one with the Wirren, or the one with the space station, or the one with the green bubble wrap. Uh, so, Liam, what have you been up to? <laughs> um, it's been quite nice. Uh, I took a week off work, and... Uh, the timing of that was perfect because the weather has massively improved. The sun's out, the heat's up, and you know it's it's just really really nice. Because May was a complete washout, uh, literally the amount of rain that we had, uh, and it got it was actually quite cold. Um, but June, as soon as that started, it's just been a huge contrast, which has been lovely. So um, from the boring scale of it is uh, being painted in the backyard. So there's that. But also um, meeting up with a couple of friends, going out for meals, which is which has been quite lovely, and then just catching up on an awful lot of reading. Um, but now, but but now I'm back to work, so there's there's that to to balance it out, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> How about you? Not much. Um, I was driving out and about today. Actually, went kind of past yours. Didn't call by to see you or anything. You were probably at work, but. <laughs> Wait, what day is this? Is it weekday? It, it is. It's Friday today. I'm, yeah. so, I'm so lost. Yeah, it's Monday for the listeners, though. Yes, yes, it is. You should have popped around because uh, yes. actually, I, mean, I was pretty much on, on top of everything. We got to that point, sort of the last couple of hours. I just, I've got to just log on just to pretend I'm doing something. Because yeah, so if you popped around, it wouldn't have, it wouldn't have been a problem. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully next time. Yeah, next time. Before we move on, have you been watching anything this week or reading anything? Well, in terms of, uh, actually, because I, I want to talk about Big Finish uh, briefly, but I'll get onto that in a second. But in terms of reading, I've been reading um, uh, Oliver Twist. Because uh, I bought Charles Dickens's novels quite a while back. Um, but Obviously, I've read some of them, but not an awful lot of them. And I thought, uh, I'll need to either go back and reread them or read the ones that I haven't. So anyway, uh, reading Oliver Twist, really enjoying that. Uh, I read that, I think, definitely more than 20 years ago. Um so it feels like I'm, I'm reading it afresh. Um, so that's quite good. I'm enjoying that. What I, um, Still dipping in and out of the poetry of Ted Hughes. Oh, one thing. It, oh, yes. Uh, reading George Orwell's essays, uh, which is great. And then um, I've never, ever read Agatha Christie before. Uh, and I thought... Hmm. Need, need to rectify that obviously aware of Agatha Christie and you know the impact that she's had on on literature and popular culture and I know how popular her her novels are not only when they were originally published but you know she's still I think she's still the most popular best-selling author ever um and of course you know there's the unicorn and the wasp the David Tennant episode but we've all seen you know that the adaptations of Miss Marple uh the Hercule Poirot either on television or through movies and so on, but to actually not, never to have, and obviously watched those, but to never have actually read any of her novels, I thought, oh, I need to get this sorted. So I bought her first three, so I've just, uh, first novels, and the very first one was a Hercule Poirot. Um, 
so yeah, j- just started reading Agatha Christie for the first time, and uh, that's cool. yeah, it's it's, it's like, yeah, like like you say, we've all seen it, mm. but uh, it's never occurred to me to go out and uh, to go and read them. It's the kind of thing I picture just old people reading. <laughs> I'm 34. Um, no, no, I know what you mean because obviously we're talking about novels that were, you know, published during the 1920s, 30s, and so on. So we're going, you know, a couple of, couple of generations back. Um, and yeah, obviously you're dealing with, uh, you know, certainly like Miss Marple or so, you know, but they're just just great stories and great characters. And in fact, uh, the other the other funny thing is that when you when something has um, become so immensely popular and how it sort of like pervades other popular culture and um, I remember when I was a kid you had these things called the Usborne puzzle books and uh, what they were but the, the way the, there were slightly advanced versions of this for slightly older readers but essentially what they were were uh, books for children with sort of like action adventure mystery stories and you would be reading them and then in order to progress further the story you would be presented with uh, with puzzles, um, and so, for example, you would read two pages of text, and there would be illustrations as well. And then, you at the very bottom, you would then be presented with a problem of you know how, how did the main character manage to escape, and all the clues were there. Um, I remember the first one was like Escape from Blood Castle, but the third one was called uh, The Golden Idol. And even as a kid, I remember reading that and thoroughly enjoying it. But going, oh, this is clearly based on. Uh, Agatha Christie's you know, Death on the Nile. Um, so mm. even as you know, even as a kid, even though you, at that point you know haven't seen the adaptations and haven't read any of the books, but somehow you, th- through some sort of osmosis, you're sort of aware of all these sort of tropes. And there I am reading this this kid's detective puzzle book, uh, and you know picking up that's clearly inspired by Death on the Nile. And um, so so now I'm actually going back to the original source, and so far really enjoying it. That's cool. Uh, oh yes, and, and big finish. So um, during your last podcast, I was I was saying that I'd listened to the first series of the Sarah, Sarah Jane Smith adventures. Um, uh, there were only two series, so finally I've, I've finished the the second series, and a bit of a bit of a funny one because in some respects it uh, it continues directly from the first series, um, and in many respects I think it's actually quite better. The there's clearly the story arc is a lot, you know, is, is woven a lot more into the narrative. There are some really great pieces which, uh, within the episodes, which really keep you on the edge of your seat. There's one episode which is set in Antarctica, uh, and that you know that's really sort of gripping. Um, it's sort of like throwaway references to the seeds of doom in there as well, but um, that kept me on the edge of my seat. Uh, as it were, I just absolutely loved listening to it. But then, it's a bit of a shame. I think the very final episode sort of lets it down a bit. Um, the because d- during the course of all these episodes, Sarah Jane has you know is put in incredible danger, and there's a character called Josh who's a friend of hers. And just as it looks about you know that Sarah Jane is about to be killed, Josh comes in, saves you know, and and usually tends to shoot. Um, the the attacker, and really that's the only way to get out of that situation. But in the very final episode, Sarah Jane has a massive problem with this, um, which doesn't sit right with me. Um, and there's a couple of moments, certainly towards the end of the episode, where Josh behaves in a very sort of out of character, stupid way, which is a little bit irritating. And then the whole thing ends on a cliffhanger, 
obviously it wasn't concluded. Um, does it work having not been followed up? Um, well, you can sort of go, well, obviously she got out of that one because, you know, we then get the, the, tele- you know, the television CBBC um, Sarah Jane Smith Adventures or whatever it's called. Mm-hmm. Um, but it would have been quite nice if we actually narratively, were, you know, were told how she got out of that situation. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's it, it's a little bit of a shame, but then it's but um, so yeah, it was it was a little bit disappointing. But then the, the the preceding episodes were were so good, and Jacqueline Pierce is in uh, is is in them. Um, and she you know she was always fantastic, plays villains very very well. Um, so the preceding episodes were you know phenomenally good. So. I still enjoyed listening to those. It's just a shame that the very final episode I felt was, you know, not quite as good as the the other ones. But the whole thing I still think is is worth listening to. I very much enjoyed them. And then because we're discussing the Ark in Space today, I um I know that Big Finish have done some stories with the Wirren in them. I think there's a, I think there's a unit story that they've done. There's an Eighth Doctor one. But I listened to the one called Wirren Isle, which has Colin Baker uh, as the Doctor in it. Um, and it ha- I never knew this because uh, I think this one came out in 2012 so it's been out for, for for quite a while now but I didn't know that the series introduced a new companion called Flip uh, played by yes. Lisa Greenwood and this is the third story that she appears in um, and I think that there's one line of dialogue which I think clearly references one of the previous two stories that she was in but Apart from that, and as I say, it's just one line. It's uh, it's very much like what I'm starting to discover with Big Finish because it's like what we said: the amount of stories that they have there. If you're coming to it new or newish, or you got some stories in your belt, it can still be very daunting. From where the hell do I start listening to them? But if you go from the sense of you know, pretty much you, can, unless they're the box sets, um, you can pretty much come to these as standalone adventures and just dip in. And this was very much the case, and it was a fantastic story written by um, William Gallagher. It's wonderfully creepy and atmospheric, and it really uses the Wirren uh, very, very effectively. So it's set in it's set in Loch Lomond, and I think it's set fifty years after the Ark in space. So the Earth has been repopulated, but they're still working things out. And so, so because it's it begins with this isolated location, and it's really atmospheric and very, very creepy. And it uses the Wirren fantastically well. And then as uh, towards the end of the story, then the, the threat of the Wirren uh, is broadened to affect the entire planet. Um, I won't spoil it, but it's definitely a story that I th- you know, uh, wholeheartedly recommend. And it's another, it's another great example of Colin Baker being bloody fantastic. Because it was said that you know, he's you know, always been a very, very good actor. And he was f- you know, fantastic as the Doctor. Uh, but during the televised adventures, you know, back in the the mid the mid eighties, perhaps you know, story wise, maybe he wasn't um, serviced as, as particularly well as he should have been. But big finish of you know have, have allowed you know it con- con- uh, compliments him very well, gives him good stories, and his performance is just fantastic. Um, Can you so give yeah, any if... hints without spoiling it? How do the Wirren tie in to the story, and where did they come from? Well, um, I suppose it's not really a spoiler because it's this is established very early on. But um, 
I think they were there prior to to um, the humans actually inhabiting uh, the Earth. They'd arrived there and they're frozen in Loch Lomond. Okay. Uh, um, I'll, I'll say no more than that. But um, I mean, because very early on, the, 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 there's a bit where you can see, you know, the frozen lake um, or the frozen lock rather, and. There's a bit where um, Flip is actually flying over them. And she's talking about, oh, it looks like there's these strange branches coming out of the ice. But that's actually the tendrils of the... Um, not the tendrils, but the... Um, I don't know what you call them. The mandibles of, of the Wirren. Mm-hmm. So, um, so even though they're frozen in the ice, they're still sort of... They're still sentient. And it really... It really... Uh, the story also really delves into, uh, you know, how Wirren can... Um, consume the knowledge of humans yes. that you know they really drill into that which is a fantastic right. idea and that really you know adds to the horror and they go th- you know th- there's um uh there's some in a, in a good way uh there's some really stomach there's a couple of stomach churning moments in the story as well as i say it's very atmospheric and william gallagher who wrote the story really uh uh goes into the horror of you know the Wirren. um so if if no one's listened to We're an Isle, uh, I definitely recommend it. That's cool. So that's in the monthly range from twenty twelve. It is in the monthly range. I think yes. I think it was released March twenty twelve. Yeah, oh, interesting. That's good to hear. This week I've been watching this time with Alan Partridge on his second series. Oh, right, okay. It's been quite good. Um, mm-hmm. Love, Death, and Robots got a second season on Netflix. I've watched a couple of those. Uh, mm-hmm. The Friends Reunion. I checked that out. Have you seen oh, it? how was it? It was good. It was short. I think... Because do you know much about it? It's basically just a, a real-life reunion. It's not an episode. Uh, I wasn't... I, yeah, I wasn't too sure about that. Uh, I, I didn't watch it. Because Friends was one of those things which I never really got into. Everyone else was funny it funny. And then I must have had a complete sense of humour bypass. And I don't get it. Uh-huh. Uh so I know for, for I know for an awful lot of people, i.e., you know, the vast majority of everyone else on the planet, was tremendously excited about the reunion. Um, you couldn't, you know. So I was aware of it. The thing that I am aware of more than anything, because I didn't watch it, was apparently Matt LeBlanc um, was <laughs> apparently wasn't enjoying it, from what I can gather. He was looking very sullen. The whole experience. Um... Mm. I'm quite familiar with Matt LeBlanc because have you watched episodes? Yes, I have. Uh, not the whole thing, but I, I've seen one or two. Yeah, uh, I th- I a think, couple of them. I think it's actually quite good. Of all the actors from Friends, I think he's the one I'm uh, more familiar with recently. Um, mm-hmm. But he, he just he did seem like his character from episodes. <laughs> right, okay. His real life um, persona. Uh, but I'm not sure if he was disliking it. Um, but I think the whole approach... Um, I prefer than an actual episode because if they came back to do an episode, um, would it have worked? Um, I don't know because it's obviously it's a format from the nineties, early two thousands. Would they try? And, and, uh, uh, yeah, and the big appeal of Friends was that it was a group of you know uh, young. 20-somethings before they have the responsibility of relationships and parenthood and everything. You know exactly and. Yeah, and th- the whole thing was their relationship as friends, hence the title. So that was the the big thing. So I think if you were to do a one-off, 
episode, you would really, what you would have to do... Yeah, I don't think it would work because you would have to basically reintroduce them all, establish where they were in their lives and effectively it would become... And basically, I think, it, you know, it's something... It would become something that the show wasn't, which is what, you know, people love about it. So, yeah. So, yeah, the... the this approach for doing a reunion was probably the best way. It was good. It was about an hour 40. Uh, in my opinion, it wasn't long enough uh, because by the time you got round to put them in all these different so- scenarios that uh, recreated the set in the same studio, there was uh, some live on stage segments and there was lots of um, original guest cast returning. Um, ah, to okay. see them. I didn't know that. It was really good. Um, mm. But... It did. I was. In, I did enjoy it, and it went by really quick. I thought, uh, yeah, it could have been a bit longer. Um, uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, I enjoyed it. No, no, good, uh, good. well, apart from well, I, is there any shame in saying I don't like someone because James Corden hosted the 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 stuff on the stage? Uh, I'm just not. I don't know why. I'm just not not a fan. No, I, I'm not a fan of James Corden either. I, f- f- funny enough, a lot of it. He's one of those people who he's sort of the human embodiment of Marmite. You either love him or yeah. you hate him. I've never met. I've never met anyone who goes, "Yeah, he's all right." Either people go, "Well, yeah, I, I don't get, the, I, I don't get, get the, I don't him. get the humor." I mean, I don't, mm. I, I don't really go out and say I hate people, but uh, I just, I, I, but, 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 I, <laughs> but he I, should I think, die. I, no, no. <laughs> I think it's that I don't relate to why people like him. It's not, I don't no, mean that in a mean way because well. I don't I don't understand his humour, uh, and a lot of the time he doesn't seem clued up on the people he's talking to. He seems very self-absorbed, I would say, and um, and yeah, I certainly don't get the humour either. And obviously, that's the big appeal. So if you don't get his humour, you just obviously you're not going to yeah. get him. And he, uh, I remember when he was first announced as being in the lodger. Uh, the Matt Smith episode, I went, oh, for God's sake. Actually, he's fantastic in it. So I like him in The Lodger. Um, Did he come back? He came back again, didn't he? Yeah, in Closing Time. Again, didn't mind him in that. The episode, I don't think, is particularly fantastic, but that's not James Corden's fault. Um, So actually, you know, I think... He's clearly very talented as an actor, and, you know, give him a good role... Uh, he can do a good job, so I can happily watch the lodger and uh, and you know James Corden's good in it. But perhaps as a presenter, it's a weird fit. Yeah, well, funny enough because um, I know that there's the second series. I haven't listened to it yet, but have you listened to any of David Tennant's podcasts? Uh, only the odd few when he first died. Right. Okay. Well, I listened to the first uh, first series, and he has some very good guests on, and it you know it's tremendous fun. Some of it is really funny. And I was enjoying them, and I, although because it was such a long time ago since I listened to them, was it maybe twenty nineteen? Twenty nineteen. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so I can't remember all the guests, but I remember there were some people who normally I wouldn't really sort of bother listening to, but because I was listening, you know, I was going through them, and it was it was tremendous. But one of the people he he interviewed, at, I think towards the end, was James Corden, and I listened to it, and. Um, yeah, it was it, it was it was the one podcast in the series I didn't I didn't particularly enjoy. Um and he was fine. It was just it, it goes back to the thing of I don't get what the appeal is. Mm-hmm. But maybe. Yeah. 
and I, I don't mean to get any hate off anyone, but um, it, you, I think you disagree. You actually do disagree with me here, but I don't get the appeal with Adele, and I think she's in the same league as James Corden in my mind. Oh wow! Okay. Well, <laughs> funny enough, I think. Um, uh, I, see, to begin with, I think Adele is. I mean. I'm not going to say that I'm a massive fan of hers or anything like that. I'm not. But, you know, I love... I do really like, you know... I mean, she does the Bond theme Skyfall, which I think is one of the best. She Not, not only she mm. sings it, but she co-wrote it. I know you really don't like it. I, on the other hand, love that song. I really, really do. Um, I, I think we were once having a conversation about what do you regard as the best Bond song. And I think I put it quite highly. Or maybe even said it was my favourite. I don't think it's... I don't think it is my favourite, actually, Bond song. It's Diamonds Are Forever. Um, but I still really like Skyfall. Rolling in the Deep, I think, is a very good song. I do like that an awful lot. Um, but ever since she did the song, I think it's just called Hello. I've kind of gone. It's a bit. That was Lionel Richie. You can't. You can't just do another Hello. <laughs> <laughs> the title's not copyrighted. I'm just, it's probably called something else, but uh, people probably know what I mean. But um, yeah, and it sort of left me a bit cold. I just thought, oh, it's a bit bland. I th- so I think, I think you know she, she, she's a very talented musician, and I think you know she's done some really really good stuff, and I think she's done some stuff that's okay. Um, and funny enough, I think this I think this may be actually something what because I know James Corden's massively popular in America, and I'm just going what they but can then, keep you know, him. Um, yeah, it's 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 like uh, like Pierce Morgan was massively popular in America. It's just like really the guy's a wanker. And thanks, America, for, you know, bringing, you know, forcing him to come back. Thanks a lot. We thought we got rid of him. Uh, although he's not on Good Morning Britain. I mean, I didn't watch GMB, but anyway. Um, but I know that James Corden's massively popular in America. But the thing is, one of the problems that I have, you know, when you see clips of American talk shows, James Fallon's the worst for this. You know, you sort of like you're getting people on and interviewing them. The whole thing is about the guest. But the presenter seems to make it all about them. It's one of the reasons why I don't like Jonathan Ross, because I think he has one of those problems as, you know, it's sort of... And I think James Corden's very... Yeah, so even though I haven't seen the Friends reunion, so... But you have. So I get the sense that maybe he was probably the worst presenter to get for that, because did you feel like when you were watching him, was did it feel distracting where you felt like he was constantly shifting the focus on himself? Um. Yeah, in fact... I feel like I've been really mean here. I was, um, my gaze was going to the other end of the screen because I didn't mm. want to look at him. <laughs> That's just <me. laughs> Why am I saying this? I sound really mean. Yeah, he's he's probably a lovely bloke, but yeah. I I can't be. But I, I, I just didn't. I, I just didn't. Um, yeah. I'm just mean. <laughs> we both are. We can't stand him. Although he is good in Lodger, so you know, yeah. just. We're, yeah. a bit. we're Doctor Who fans, we're all mean. Just kidding. <laughs> yeah, there is an element of that, isn't it? Yeah, we wouldn't be Doctor Who fans unless we were needlessly bitchy about something. <laughs> uh, so, um, Liam, would you like a jelly baby? No. No. Well, we asked members of the public if they'd like a jelly baby. And oh, right, okay. 71.4% said yes. Fair enough, yeah, yeah. Jelly, jelly Babies are good. Yep. When I was very young, uh, probably like when we were two, when I was two or something, um, my mom remind, my mother reminded me of this uh, a couple of weeks ago. I don't know why. 
uh, it was something to do with we were talking about, and she said, oh, no, Liam, um, when you were very, very young, you, you wouldn't eat jelly babies. It actually made you cry, and you said that, no, because I don't want to eat babies. <laughs> I, thought, I thought there were little mini babies covered in jelly or something like that. <laughs> the whole thing just upset me very, very much. <laughs> you don't still weep while you eat them, do you? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I don't. I, I realise that they're not real babies. Yes. <laughs> Um, so there's no news this week of course last Monday was the big re-release of season 12 on Mm -hmm. Blu-ray coincided with our review of Robot Um, we did ask the question is anyone buying the re-release of Doctor Who season 12 on Blu-ray we asked if, if they were buying it, yes. Uh, no, not interested. Or no, I already got the original. <laughs> uh, right, okay. Uh-huh. And 16, 16-odd percent said no, not interested. <laughs> and it was a tie. About 41% each side said yes, buying it. Or no, got the original. I know that there's a, there's an awful lot of people who are really looking forward to, to getting it, which, which is great. And I know that uh, season... 19 is also getting a re-release i think season 10 i've forgotten what the other season is now will also will be the next lot getting a re-release and in terms of the the limited edition version um season 24 forgot the numbers right yes season 24 which is sylvester mccoy's first season um uh, that got announced ages ago, and just been I pre-ordered it and just been waiting and waiting and waiting for when you release that it. Not here yet. When you release no. it? No, so I haven't got it. But finally, we do have the release date, uh, and it's going to be the end of this month, the end of June. So finally, going to be, uh, getting close to getting my hands on that and watching some of the most campus ridiculous, but one of the most enjoyable seasons of Doctor Who ever. Um, so I'm looking forward to that. So mm-hmm. uh, on with the Ark in space. The TARDIS lands on a space station orbiting Earth in the distant future. It's seemingly deserted, but the Doctor, Sarah and Harry soon discover that they are not alone. Thousands of humans are in cryogenic sleep, and while they've slept, their ark has been invaded. A parasitic insect race, the Wirren, have taken control and threaten the very future of mankind. We have the main cast, of course, Tom Baker is the Doctor, Elizabeth Sladen, Sarah Jane Smith, Ian Martyr, Harry Sullivan, Wendy Williams as Vira, Kenton Moore as Noah, Richardson Morgan as Rogan, Lysett, John Gregg, Libri Christopher Masters, The High Minister's Voice, Gladys Spencer, Peter Tuddenham as The Voice of Nerva, and we have Brian Jacobs briefly as June. So, episode one begins, we have a nice exterior shot of the Ark, or Nerva Station if you prefer. I watched the original model version for this uh, last week. Um, Do you have a preference? Because it was released initially in 2003 with new CGI effects. Um, I'm presuming this is included on the Blu-ray, or has it since been updated for the Blu-ray? I cannot 100% say, but I have. A, I think they have been updated. Um, certainly when I... Because um, some, not all of 
the stories that get re-released in the Blu-ray box set have the option to watch um, with updated CGI. The Ark in Space is one of them. Revenge of the Cybermen is the other in terms of season 12. Um, and I think they're done a lot more sympathetically than uh, some of the... Because uh, the DVDs um, so sometimes had the option of CGI upgrades with the special effects. Um, I think the Dalek Invasion of Earth was probably one of them when it worked very, very effectively. Uh, more often than not, I felt that they were very distracting. Mm. Um, they didn't really mesh with the rest of the visuals. Whereas with the Blu-ray box sets, I think the the, the CGI that they do use is, uh, is incorporated a lot more better and is more visually tied in. And it's, yeah, um, seamless. It just yeah. sells the... Yeah, it's a bit more seamless. It just allows you to sell the story a little bit more, but it's a lot more sympathetic to the, the rest of the production. And actually, um, the CGI effects for the Ark in Space aren't too bad. I, I do like them. But, asking for a preference, I do much prefer the original models. Yeah. One, I think the models are actually really rather good in general anyway. Um... But obviously, it's um, it's a bizarre choice so because the, the the models are fine. The, yes, uh, I, I never really thought that the the special effects of the Ark in space have have, have dated. Um, so yeah, uh, as you say, an, an interesting choice. Uh, it's there. The CG uh, the CGI effects are, are are good, but I think that the model the original model effects I think are, are my preference. a lot better. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. we did ask, we did a poll. Um, do you prefer original model footage or new CGI footage? And it was 50-50. Yeah, no one cares either way. <laughs> <laughs> For me, I think it comes down to providing it's an option. Yes. <laughs> uh, Not compulsory. Think, you know, we, we've t- been forced upon yeah, it. Yeah, that's the thing. It's sort of, if it's, it, it, it's there as, as an interesting choice, but as long as you have the ability to watch the original... And you haven't rewritten history and all the rest of it, and you're watching it as it was originally made and intended, and so on. Then that's fine. Yeah. Um, I think, in fact, when the 2005 revival came out, Satellite Five reminded me of the of the remastered arc. And uh, like you mentioned earlier, was it Invasion Earth that was the updated saucer? Uh, that yes. that was mm-hmm. a good choice. Um, I think that was inspired by the comics. I might be wrong. Uh, but it did also match with the new series as well. The saucer choice. Yes, it did. And what I also liked was that there was a deliberate choice of, uh, in terms of the actual effects and the rays fr- coming from the the, the, the saucer. Is going. They tried to to replicate it, saying, "Going well, okay, television couldn't do these special effects, but the films of the time could." Ah, okay. So it matched the you know the sort of the special effects that one would see in nineteen fifties B movies like. The War of the Worlds. Was that um, like thunder coming out so, of the base or something like that? Like an energy beam? Yeah, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, yep, that was the exterior shot. Inside the station, we see the Warren's point of view of opening a sleep chamber. I presume this is June. So, obviously, mm-hmm. there's, yeah. there's trouble on the station. Um, and there's a mystery to solve. So, the TARDIS materialises. We've got this lush shot as it appears in the shadows. And then... As it finishes materialising, the overhead sign lights up brilliantly. Um, I'm not sure if this has happened previously or if this is a new technique. Are you are you aware of that? Uh, I can't remember of any other instances where the 
the the sign of the TARDIS is lit up. But uh, yeah, it certainly does here, and I think uh, it's it's very well done. Yeah. So the team embark, and we have Harry's first reaction to leaving the TARDIS, which is quite nice. Um, mm-hmm. uh, well, what I, what I presume is his first one. I don't know if the expanded media have kind of squeezed any adventures in between this <laughs> and robot. Who knows? In that case, you could say this is just his first reaction to being on a space station. <laughs> so, uh, in a very doctory way, he does a gravity check with a yo-yo, which I like. So he turns on the lights, and everything's very clean and bright. Sarah's found another room, but frustratingly can't get anyone's attention. So yes, she goes off to explore, and the doors close quietly behind her. Um, so they're going to have some issues with the oxygen. So the doctor does explain a few things. He says he suspects he suspects that the station was built 29th to 30th century, but um, since Harry gave the helmet regulator quite a twist, uh, way beyond that period, um, several thousand years at least. Sarah's locked in the other room with little air. In fact, um, they're all running out of air. So the doctor and Harry they want to get in. So he gets Harry to remember which control he pressed. Of course, Harry is responsible for closing the door. How can he resist um, <laughs> trying all the buttons and switches? So they try to get Sarah, but she's passed out from lack of air. Oh, there's a funny thing. Harry says he hates sliding doors ever since he caught his nose in one. <laughs> the barracks. <laughs> yeah. Do you think yeah, he just yeah. nipped it, or do you think he actually got stuck there for a while? You know? <laughs> <laughs> I've always liked that line. It is extremely comic. It's very, you know, I've just got this image that, you know, he literally trapped his entire hooter in a door. <laughs> uh, the free very embarrassing. <laughs> so the oxygen controls don't seem to be responding and it seems apparent that the wires have been cut. So, yep, there's a bit of a mystery here. Thankfully, the doctor uses his screwdriver to fix the cables. Um, did he have a screwdriver in Robot? I don't remember. Uh, yes, he did. I th- uh, you certainly see it in the final episode. I think he uses it. What you, you think? He, I think he says he uses it as a sonic lance ah, to right, cut okay. the the lock out of the door. But yes, he does have the the sonic in that uh, story. Was season twelve the the debut of the fourth Doctor Screwdriver? Uh, yes, I think it was. Right. Yeah. Okay. Because obviously we remember Pertwee's one. I famously remember it on uh, the scene on the beach. With the oh, and the sea devils, yeah, yeah, because yeah. it has the, the yellow and black stripes, doesn't it? Yeah, I like that one. Yeah, it's quite mm-hmm. different to all the others. They rest Sarah on a bed, or what seems to be a bed. Of course, it's not. It's a transmat bed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Of course. So the doctor suggests that there's a mystery here. The wires have been sheared or bitten. So clearly deliberate, but a long mm-hmm. time ago. So Sarah's awake at this point, and they decide to take her back to the TARDIS for some brandy. But when the Doctor and Harry enter the main room, this robotic guard appears from the ceiling. It's obvious that the that the this drone thing or guard is here to protect the Ark. Um, it would later become clear that this drone is what killed the Wirren in the, cur- in the cupboard. I was left wondering, especially as the story went on, especially in episode 4, why aren't these guards all over the station? I mean, I guess if this is like a control room, I guess it's important, but wouldn't they want to guard the cryogenic chamber more? In fact, these would have been really handy in episode four, so they didn't have to like electrify the doors. But, yeah, but then it, you could actually say having something like that in the cryogenic chamber caused a you know 
caused a health and safety issue. Yeah, I suppose so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so best not to have it yeah. there. And it's a really bad design flaw that it only targets organics. Leaves a bit, mm. of, bit of a weakness there. So Sarah's on the transmat bed, but she's transported elsewhere and greeted by a recorded message um, mm. preparing her for stasis, for cryogenic sleep. She's also played a message from the High Minister <laughs> and mm-hmm. uh, the chamber closes and she's kind of put to sleep and there's loads of smoke that fills up the chamber. So uh, back with the Doctor and Harry, uh, the Doctor concludes that the drone um, is targeting organics. Um, so here's a good bit. He uses his screwdriver to undo his screw. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Almost unheard of in today's uh, Doctor Who. Yes. Didn't see that coming. The sonic screwdriver is actually used as a sonic screwdriver. <laughs> yes. One wrong move and they'll be charcoal, he says. <laughs> yeah. So he tries to switch off the guard with his scarf. No luck. Harry tries with a cricket ball. No luck. It's organic. Then he sacrifices Harry's final shoe as a distraction. <laughs> uh, and the Doctor makes a run for the controls. So that's a success. Mm-hmm. And pity about the scarf. Um, Madame Nostradamus made it. The witty little knitter. So, uh, <laughs> I love that line. Yeah. yeah. Does Harry have no shoes for the rest of the episode? I forgot to like pay attention after this. Yeah, uh, no, no, he doesn't. He, doesn't uh, he just walks around with his uh, with his socks. Yeah, the the uh, the lack of shoes continuity is spot on in this story. They don't just magically reappear on his feet later on. Once that's dealt with, they both go off and search for Sarah. So we have this uh, introduction to the cool curved corridor with the exterior windows. Um, this is one of my favorite set design pieces in this story. Um, mm. I think it's re- reused in um, the Cybermen, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But uh, yeah, it's pretty cool because all these interior space station sets um, do get a bit boring when you can't really see outside. So it was pretty cool having the exterior shot of the stars. Mm, yeah, I think the, I think overall we we'll, we'll talk about the design of the cryogenic chamber a, a little bit later on. But I think uh, Roger Murray Leach, who's the designer in this story, he had, um, I think he, uh, I think his degree was in architecture. Uh, but in terms of his work with the BBC, he, um, he'd been designing game show sets up until this point. And then uh, finally was given the opportunity to design a Doctor Who. The first one he did in terms of production order was the Sontaran experiment, because that, that was produced before the Ark in Space, although broadcast after it. But so I think you know, just a few things like he designed the robot in that story. But right. so anyway, that's that's a conversation for another time. The next podcast, in fact. Um, but then he, you know, he really gets his his teeth into designing a Doctor Who story with this one. It's a fantastic job, um, really, really well designed. And yes, this curved corridor is one of the best set designs in the history of the show. I think it's fantastic. It. Um, in fact, Tom Baker uh, tended to say it. Certainly, he certainly makes a point of it in the the Tom Baker years um, that Roger Murray-Leach was one of the better designers. In fact, you know he was that good that the doors closed without shaking too much. Type thing was, right. was his comment. Um, and yeah, it's it's just it's a phenomenally good design. And uh, Philip Hinchcliffe, who was producing the show at this point, um, he he tended to want to get Roger Murray-Leach 
as much as possible, recognizing how how good he was. And later on, he would. Um, I think he. I think he was the designer for Terror of the Zygons, mm. uh, Seed of Doom, Planet of Evil, The Talents of Wang, Chi- Talents of Wang Chiang, The Deadly Assassin. There may be one or two others, but I, th- I think those are the ones. You know, and incredibly good, strong, iconic designs, and give you a real sense of space. He was certainly one of the better designers for for the show, and the Ark in Space. Still, you know, he would later go on to uh, design uh, things like the Liberator and Blake Seven. Right. Okay. But I think that's I think I think that was a painful memory for him because <laughs> there's uh, there's uh, one of the special features. It was on the DVD as well, but uh, obviously it's in. It, you can still watch it with the the the, the current release of the Ark. Um, he he, the special feature where uh, he's interviewed. And it begins with him. Please don't ask me about Blake Seven. Please don't ask me about that. So I was like, all right, okay. Um, but yeah, fantastic design. The arc is incredible. Yeah, and uh, it's like the the platform they're walking on is raised a bit. Um, it's not simply a corridor with some fake windows. It this whole mm. dimension to it, and the the curvature matches the shape of the arc. Um, it's brilliant. Yeah. And not not quite often does the interior match the exterior oh uh, there's a funny scene where an angry voice tells them to keep out <laughs> <laughs> yeah um, Peter, Peter Tudnam uh, again Blake Seven he did the voice of the, the, the main computers um, Zen, Orak and Slave uh, he also did some of the voices in Time of the Rani I think anyway uh, yes he was most amused that he was asked to do the voice of a door um, I read that in the production subtitles. He was quite amused by he quite amused by that. Um, and it's certainly very distinctive. It yeah. just seems to come out of nowhere. Yeah. Very angry voice. It is... This is a sterile area. Keep out. <laughs> just like hospital. It's not even effective. <laughs> they go in. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. Oh, and before they go in, there's a slimy green thing sliding away that Harry spots mm-hmm. in the trail of slime. <laughs> so they enter the hibernation area of the station. There's an animal and botanic section, which sadly doesn't seem to play a part in the story. Um, there's also a microfilm archive uh, of human history on the wall, that mm-hmm. numbered section, um, which is pretty cool. So this whole thing uh, houses humanity and uh, all its history. <laughs> yes, mm-hmm. In, in microfilm, in microfilm, which obviously yeah. now we sort of laugh at and go, "That's so, that's so antiquated." But actually, you know, microfilm was, I think, used certainly by the end of the twentieth, might be even as early as the, you know, the very beginning of the twenty-first century. It was, it's only recently been superseded by you know digital storage. Um, so, so it's it's only re- you know the arc yeah. space. Historically speaking, has only relatively become outdated with that one. But it doesn't matter. It's it's as you say. It's uh, the whole thing of encountering, you know, the, the storage of all human yeah. history, culture, and knowledge. It's uh, it was yeah, a yeah. nice idea. And the microfilm won't be affected by solar flares because we'll have all these coronal mass ejections coming from the sun and uh, frying any kind of uh, digital storage that we've got. So microfilm yeah, won't, be, exactly. won't be susceptible so, you know, to uh, the solar flares. Mm. So yeah, there's, mm-hmm. a, there's a reason to that. <laughs> so they enter the next room, which I guess we can talk about now. The big air, uh, the cryogenic chamber. Uh, mm-hmm. Again, an amazing piece of set design. It shows this wide scope of all all the bodies there. 
Not only do we have other levels, but we see through the corridors into other chambers. I'm trying to compare it to something else in Doctor Who before. I'm struggling to. We have Tomb of the Cybermen. But for that, um, it was a model shot where we got a wide shot of uh, the um, the sleep chambers with the Cybermen. And mm-hmm. with this, we can have a wide shot of the characters. And it feels quite vast, doesn't it? It doesn't yeah. leave much to the imagination. Um, so I think they've really succeeded in pulling that one off. Oh, yeah, yeah, they did. I mean, if you see some of the, the actual production uh, photographs where you can see the set in in relation to the actual studio, it, it's actually quite surprising how small the set is and actually it, it doesn't go that high up. Um, still an impressive set, but what it means is that it, it makes you realise actually you know, the, the direction by Rodney Bennett and and the cameraman did a fantastic job because the use of the angles um, in selling that space, it, it does really, really work. I mean, for example, they hold off revealing the entire set. You know, the, 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 door, op- the door opens, mm-hmm. we see uh, the Doctor and Harry walk towards it, we see their reaction looking into the chamber before the camera then does this great shot which pulls which pulls out, then angles up. So you then sort of have this, this wonderful sweeping angle of going from from ground level looking up to the to the set and actually realising, wow, this is a great open space and actually it's got some height to it as well. It goes up at least three levels. Looking at the production photograph, you actually realise that what the camera does is it, 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 it just stops short of where the set is. So, um, which obviously that's what you would want. You don't want to see the lights and everything like that. But uh, they do a really good job of selling the entire space. You're not aware of any limitations. I mean, it's a fantastic design. They really sell the the. It's a, again, it's 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 a, it's a really really good set. Um, a lot of people tend to uh, say that yes, it was very impressive, certainly for 1974, 75. But um, you know, the fact that the everything's overlit and very very white has actually dated it and i think it's funny i actually you know i tended to agree with that but i think watching it now i don't know whether it's maybe i'm a bit forgiving i don't think it is that at all i think we're in a stage of that sort of uh, design is maybe coming back it's clearly inspired by 2001 a space odyssey which was uh, 2001 a space odyssey was this you know it was an incredibly influential science fiction film uh, certainly with its design, and it clearly influenced science fiction, both in certainly in in visual means on television and film for you know for for years and years and years to come. The Ark in Space is one of those which was clearly influenced by that. Roger Murray, you know, produced very original designs, but in terms of the you know the clinical white overlit thing, um, you know, trying to be appear sterile scientific and so on was clearly inspired by 2001 it's only with something like i'd say alien at it's, the very end of the 70s you know it gets reduces another redesign to the of, fact that it's okay to be dirty in space yeah yeah um and so yeah exactly and so you know a used dirty space and so that so then we got used to seeing that in science fiction and again that comes 
you know, clear Doctor Who becomes influenced by by that with stories like Resurrection of the Daleks. Um, I think as a, as a good example. But I think maybe we're, we're sort of coming coming around the other way again. Of thinking if we think about you know, uh, you know science, clean, sterile environments, you think of white surfaces and bright light and so on. So I think maybe we're actually coming to a point where this sort of this sort of design is coming back into fashion again. Perhaps, yeah. So the Doctor, in admiration of the human species, says um, how they've survived flood, famine, war, etc. Um, <laughs> making this slight biblical references to uh, Noah's Ark, which would uh, become more obvious in a while when uh, one of the characters has been nicknamed Noah. <laughs> Harry seems to think that they're all dead, all these people, but uh, the Doctor explains the nature of the cryogenic sleep to him. It's a funny bit, I don't know if it's just in my head, but um, the Doctor looks up and remarks that all colours, all creeds, all differences finally forgotten. Yet, mm-hmm. <laughs> we're only introduced to kind of white English people. <laughs> He's kind of looking up. Does he mean, like, all these... All these differences have actually been forgotten and left behind. Because <laughs> no one all knows who creeds they, they've been. They've all been forgotten. It's all just white people. Uh, it's this great idea that um, we can hmm. move past this stuff, but it's not conveyed at all beyond that. No, no, it's not. It's yeah. It's one of those funny things that if you obviously you would uh, if you were to redo the story now you would obviously address that. And certainly now, because, you know, Britain is very, very much more multicultural. Yeah. And, you know, we, we're seeing that in, you know, when you're out and about yeah. in society, but obviously more, uh, you know, it's, it's you know, uh, everywhere you go, every single profession is is, uh, is multicultural. Yeah. And so it, it's certainly there in the acting profession, yeah. as we know. Uh, I mean, there's also the other end of the spectrum where you can be accused of trying to be more diverse and more politically correct and uh so some situations you just can't win it seems no no exactly it's uh yeah but in terms of (laughs) but let's not go there because it's it's you know it's a huge conversation and not within the remits of the podcast i'd say but you know it is it is an important conversation but focusing on this point um it is a bit funny because really this sort of period of of popular culture and and Britain, you know, it was starting to change at this point. But you know, it. Um, so there were obviously black actors. Um, but the industry industry not, was probably oversaturated with. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, with 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 more white actors, but then obviously representing the the makeup of Britain as it was then. I mean, it's very interesting because uh, g- going ahead, one of the best Doctor Who stories, and it's still very highly rated, is the Tarns of Wang Chiang. But of course, it's also extremely controversial because one of the main actors, who's supposed to be Chinese, is a Caucasian actor made up to look Chinese. And this was, uh, when was that? 1977. And it's it's really, uh, and I think that one of the other reasons why it really stands out in this story is because you got you have an awful lot of extras in that story who are actually Chinese, um, and it's it, it it's really obviously certain with modern eyes you just go bloody hell. Uh, I think that was the last 
probably the last occasion where you, uh, you know, that was necessary mm-hmm. in quotation marks to actually, you know, get get a well-established um, good actor in the role in Britain. I think, funnily enough, I think probably if you were if you were to do the, you know, a story like the Turns of Wang Chiang, even two years later, you would probably, you know, look at casting um, an actual so? Asian. Mm-hmm. Southeast Asian actor in the role, yeah. uh, British Southeast Asian. So, yeah, it's you know, it, so yeah, it's it's a great line, and it sort of shows you know how far we've come as humanity. But yeah, looking at you know watching it now, you can't help but think, but that line is no means reflected in the cast. Not at all. No. Yeah, but I mean, um, but we're not disparaging the actors. The, the cast are actually you know absolutely brilliant. It's just that you, you know, you got this line of so you know all differences are finally gotten. You know, there's no racial prejudice or anything like that. Is the inference? Yeah. Um, but it's it's but it's not visually depicted in the story. It's a good notion. Yeah. Yeah. So they spot this slimy trail leading to one of the vents, or or, or, oh, or do yeah. they? Because I feel like they're just ignoring it for a while. It's blatantly obvious. <laughs> but yeah, this is of course leading away from the character of June's empty cryo um cryogenic sleep chamber so to their horror they find sarah in one of the sleep chambers um harry quickly goes to find a resuscitation unit and when he opens the cupboard a dead woman falls on him um and that's the end of part one talking about that cliffhanger in particular um i think the fact the very fact of finding Sarah in the chamber, perhaps that would have been a more effective cliffhanger. Um, the Wirren, of course, that's the creature of the episode, but um, do you think the the costume design of that, in that very instance, wasn't great? Was it not effective? Yeah, I think so. It's funny. So the very first time I watched The Ark in Space, this was uh, back in the days when we had VHS cassettes. And the way it was on there was all the cliffhangers cliffhangers had been edited out. So it wasn't, you weren't, I wasn't watching it episodically. It was like watching a feature length movie. Uh, it was just the, the, the story of The Ark in Space. All the material was there, but you were basically watching it all as if it was an entire story. Uh, and actually, that that that's really that really works. This is one of the stories that that uh, you can watch uh, as if it's a feature length movie. It works like that. It's got that structure and that pace. Um, so I wasn't aware when I was watching it where the cliffhangers would be, and I remember thinking, "Well, where are the cliffhangers?" And I actually thought that the first, I thought the first cliffhanger would, oh yeah, it would make sense. They realise Sarah's being put into uh, the cryogenic system and I think that's I thought that I agree with you I think that would have been a much more effective cliffhanger I didn't realize that the the cliffhanger was the women falling out of the cupboard yeah until um this was 1997 Tom Baker was doing the book signing tour of his autobiography who on earth is Tom Baker and in Newcastle uh the event was at the Tyneside Cinema and I went there, and before Tom Baker you know, storms through the cinema and arrives, we all saw episode one of The Ark in Space. So the first time I ever saw the actual episode properly was in a cinema. It was fantastic. Um, and yeah, and then so it was like, I was just enjoying it and going, oh, so that was the cliffhanger. And watching it now, it's sort of, I think it's one of those things, it's the typical thing of the cliffhanger of going, 
oh, we reveal the monster or, or part of a monster or whatever, but that's the that's the cliffhanger. So it is a typical thing. I think it works on paper, but the, the overall execution, which is a, a big ant-like creature collapsing, <laughs> sort of like falling. I mean, I, I like the design of the Wirren, but I think, and, and in fact, uh, I think this is in the, did you listen to the commentary? No, I didn't get, didn't get the opportunity. Uh, Philip Hinchcliffe says that he really liked the design of the Wirren. Says it's a good design and the actual, and it was made up well. The problem with it is, is perhaps goes down into the lighting. Um, if they brought the lights down a little bit, the plasticity of the creature, certainly with the eyes, would be less evident. Mm-hmm. Um, the, but, but I can sort of forgive the episode for that. The problem that I have actually is this huge giant. You know, it's the Queen Wirren, the progenitor. Um, the bottom half of it looks like someone's just squashed it. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It should. It's not fully cylindrical. It's just. It looks like that this poor prop's been battered around a bit, and no one's looked after it. And they just, oh, we'll just chuck it into the studio and film it. God damn it! Well, that that um, squash it into the cupboard. <laughs> I know, it but fit. it's just. Yeah, it just. It, just that's the problem that I that I have with it, um, and in fact, there's there's a uh, there's a photograph of Tom Baker lying on it, uh, which I think you can see on the DVD and the Blu-ray. And just going, was it Tom Baker lying on it? Squash this, <laughs> squash this thing. Is that what the problem is? Um, I think that's you know a bit unfortunate, but I like to believe that. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so Harry examines the Warren and. It seems to be long dead. Um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure it's um, explained how recent the Wirren was there. Um, who knows? Um, mm. So they find a med kit and notice that one of the crew is beginning to wake up, and this is Vira. Her wake up must have been triggered uh, with her arrival. Uh, she's confused at who they are. It's not really cleared up, though. Um, I don't know if she just assumes um, they're from another colony. Or what, what does she call them? Um, old worlders or something like that. Out, old uh, yeah, what, what is the phrase? Outworlders or... Yeah, old, it's old timers. Like that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but is, is she implying they're from the past? I don't know. No, I don't think she's implying that she thinks that they're from the past. I think... I think what she's implying was that maybe there was a group of humans which were, you know, were traditionalists or conservative or something like that, and want, you know, um, hippies, <laughs> probably, probably not conservative. Yeah. I think that's probably the wrong analogy. I think she was probably thinking, oh, you're that bunch of hippies which just think, you know, we should all be uh, living naturally, man. Um, I think that's the sort of the inference I get from yeah. it. Uh, Not that she thought that they were from the past. Of course, she knows there's other uh, Earth colonies out there. Um, mm-hmm. In this story, it was revealed that some went to Andromeda. Um, mm-hmm. I wonder if the you know the Starship UK stuff with the Star Whale was that this set of solar flares that they went to avoid? Was that something? That's a good question, but. Probably knowing Stephen Moffat. Yeah, yeah, probably. Maybe. Not knowing him. <laughs> We're best mates. Uh... <laughs> they ask Vira to help them revive Sarah. So she does. Um, it takes Sarah a while to regain consciousness, though. Um, 
and she says the revivification. Revivif- can't even say it. <laughs> Revivification. Re- revivification. Um, might or might not be successful. So she goes mm-hmm. to revive uh, Noah or Lazar. Yeah. So then they show Vira the dead Wirren and explain that she's overslept <laughs> because, of course, the Wirren have sabotaged the the alarm clock. So mm-hmm. we see this larval form of Wirren crawling around um, and it turns off the power supply um, this of course is the level form before we're in that came out of June's chamber um, it's turned off the power supply so it, yes it's sentient but it, it, I guess even at this stage maybe it does have um, some of this knowledge it's assimilated so the doctor goes off to fix the problem because they need the power to revive everyone so yes as Vira awakens Noah um, he doesn't seem very pleased with the new arrivals um, so I, I think he wants to like, kill them doesn't he <laughs> but Vira um, convinced him to let the let the council decide their fate yeah because the, 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 the problem that they have uh, seems to be twofold one it's a sort of established that this funny enough there's, there's a bit of a uh, there's a bit of a contrast between the humans and the Wirren in the sense that at this point, humans are sort of like, um, behave like they're in an ant colony. You know, everyone has their function. Everyone behaves themselves. Everything, you know, everyone's in terms of their role is compartmentalized. And, um, in fact, Noah actually describes the way that everything's been, you know, everything's been, compact evaluated and all the rest of it in terms of you know who can be you know compatible with somebody else in order for the you know the for um reproduction and they seem to be concerned about the the TARDIS crew's presence in that you know they may be contaminating them and the fact the very idea that they might become romantically involved with somebody you know uh, and, and affect the reproduction of you know everyone else when everything's been evaluated is just gross get away um so that that seems to be the thing but then but then virus says uh the one they could f- form part of one colony there was a seven percent stretch stretch factor in their plan or something like that it's a bit Hmm. Um, so there's within a very short, you know, within only a couple of lines, there's an awful lot to unpack there in terms of what, how Robert Holmes has depicted uh, how humans are in the future. Yeah, um, I don't know if it's good or bad perspective. Um, do you, sorry, did you think all that made them different or similar to the Wirren? Similar to begin with, but then what ends up happening is as the story progresses, actually, what makes humans better than the Wirren? as it were, um, it, it is actually what what it means to be human. Uh, and that, that does become, you know, and that it's, um, and actually, and again, I don't want to jump too far ahead. We'll, we'll come onto this later on, but actually really what saves the day is the indomitable human spirit. Mm. And in fact, in, in that sense, this is Robert Holmes's most optimistic um, Doctor Who story because you know uh, the way that Robert Holmes you know he was you know very sardonic and sarcastic and you know um, painted sometimes hum- humanity in a negative light mm-hmm. um, but here I think he's at his most optimistic it's 
that that speech that that Tom Baker ga- gave in the first episode about the human race being indomitable. Not only is it one of not only is it sort of arguably the moment when Tom Baker's Doctor really becomes the fourth Doctor in the sense of right, you know, John Pertwee wouldn't have said that speech. Uh, his Doctor wouldn't have said that speech. Nor would any of the others. The, the fourth Doctor says it. It's sort of it's the one speech, the one moment. The, the doctors tend to have these moments where they might have a little speech and that sort of that, that sets them up as going right that's the moment when everything's fully formed and uh this becomes the fourth doctor so not only is it that but also it's um what it is to be human is to to fight on and have hope and yeah. understand beauty and so on and so forth yeah i guess there's a stepping stone here from uh like you say how everyone's got their got their function the station um skills have been compartmentalized and it's almost like that takes away from humanity but of course the message here is that humanity just prevail um mm-hmm. but um of course they they, they were leaving the earth uh, i think uh, i think i mean right now we can kind of relate to that uh how um the need to survive seems to affect the quality of life um so they were in this position where they got on the ark to avoid the flood, which was, of course, the solar flares. Um, mm-hmm. So this this way of life and how everyone's been selected for a purpose, um, it might not necessarily have been the constant way of life um, when the earth was habitable. It may have just been a means to survive. Uh, and once, once they repopulate the earth, that... Um, they might regain some more of the humanity. Noah finds out that the doctors went off to fix the the power issue, um, uh, and of course he's not very impressed that there's there's people here, and so he rushes off to see the doctor. I um, mean, of course he doesn't doesn't want him meddling with the power. So um, the doctor sees this Wirren larvae inside the power stack. We've got these solar power stacks that power the station. Um, so that's not good. Uh, mm-hmm. So Sarah's a bit freaked out by the dead Warren, um, as you would be. Uh, Vera asks Harry um, what he done with June. So she realizes uh, a member of the team, June, is has vanished, and there's these new arrivals there. So of course, maybe they've got something to do with it. Um, but yeah, again though. No one seems to notice the slimy trail leading from the June's chamber to the vent. Is it obvious to everyone but me? You noticed it, yeah? Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, the <laughs> thing is because um, the, the the doctor and uh, Harry have already seen it. Yeah. But, yeah, it's... You think Vyra uh, would be like, hang on a minute. <laughs> uh, Maybe just some kind of mould. Yeah. So, uh <laughs> Noah shoots the doctor, suspecting that he's sabotaging the solar stacks. Thankfully, mm-hmm. he just stuns him. Um, so then Noah enters the power room to investigate and sees that the solar stack's been broken. So the larvae was in there and now it's broken out. Um, and then this slimy green hand comes and reaches out and smears slime on his hand. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's kind of the, the beginning of the end for him. Yes, yeah. <laughs> um so Sarah and Harry 
um, the find and wake up the doctor. And then Noah also wakes up uh, and confronts them. So, so anyway, back in the cryogenic chamber, Vira's waking up. Um, another person is this? Is this Libri? Uh, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and he reacts to Noah as if he's seen something terrifying. Um, and then <laughs> the confusion kind of passes. Um, it's not very clear what actually happens here. Um, is this because Noah has started this transformation? Yeah. Um, and what was it, do you think, that made this guy see something? Is um, it some kind I, of I think telepathic it's, thing? Or, I don't know. No, I don't think it's telepathic. I think it's, you know... Because um, he, no, he hasn't that... transformed yet. There's not this veil concealing this uh, wearing. No, but if you notice, uh, what the actor's doing at this point is he's his his hand is always in his pocket. So uh-huh. the transformation has actually begun. Yeah. Um, so he is in the process of turning into a Wirren. We don't necessarily know that at this point of the story, but we do know that something's happened because you know, as you say, his he he's the Wirren her this this giant grub thing has slimed something on him. Mm-hmm. Which had a very instinct, uh, inst- uh, a very quick reaction because uh, Noah then collapsed, then wakes up. From that point on, his hand is in his pocket, um, and then uh, Libri has uh, has um, woken up from the cryogenic uh, sleep. Um, and I think what what this is, I think it's quite simply, is his survival instinct kicking in. He realizes that it's the human. Um, Survival instinct kicking in, he recognizes that there's, you know, there's something horrible there. And in fact, the um, the doctor takes this very seriously. And later on, uh, even says to Libra, you know, you had a subconscious. Uh, I wish I could remember the exact line, but a subconscious impression of something horrible. Right. So I think it's just, you know, his uh, yeah, his survival instinct kicking in. Okay. Um. So Noah does begin to act irrational and bizarre. Um, mm-hmm. He orders Vira to stop the revivic, revivic. Sorry, why can I not say it? Because I'm tired. Well, it is a tr- it is a tricky word to say. Revivification. To say. That's the one. Yep. <laughs> that thing. Yes, Vira, stop. <laughs> um, when Vira asks um, about no about June, he says that he himself is June. So there's a bit of confusion here. Um, the the larval we're in had assimilated June. And when it's smeared green slime on Noah's hand um, and Noah begins this transformation, he's inheriting the memories from the Wirren yes. in turn from mm-hmm. June. So it's, it's, it's happening very fast. So that must be a bit of a confusing moment for, for, uh, for Noah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but yeah, there's that thing. So you, because it's been established. No, hang on. I think I'm jumping a little bit ahead, isn't it? I think it's, yes, I think it's after this moment that the Doctor starts to um, work out what's going on and then realises that Logue, um, who was the first chap that was seen the very first episode? No, um, no, 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 June. No. June, yes, thank you. Um, June was um, assistant technician or something like that. He goes, yes, how did you know? He says, well, they went straight to the solar stack, so they have knowledge of what that is. Mm. So they must have... Uh, not only physically digested him, but also all the knowledge that he had. Mm-hmm. So there's that, and then obviously what they're able to do is then genetically 
transfer that knowledge onto, you know, it would be the next generation of women and whoever turns, who who whoever transforms into one. Yeah, it's scary. And then so yeah, so so not only so that yeah, it's it's actually a very scary idea because not only are you, you know, not only have you got the body horror of what Noah's going through, um, and the story doesn't hold back on that we see all the physical transformations so not only is he going through the body horror of physically transforming into this thing but also um it's all obviously it's affecting his mind he's becoming something completely different but not only will he have his own memories but the memories of somebody else and also the memories of the women so the doctor examines june's sleep chamber and finds this slimy membrane yay someone's finally seen it um, then he suspects that June was, I think, digested is the word he used. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe it was a similar transformation that um, that Noah goes through. Um, so, so he says that both his body and mind um, were assimilated or digested. Mm-hmm. So Libri confronts Noah at gunpoint, but the gun's taken off him and he's shot by Noah. So um, this is where... Noah takes the hand out of his pocket, revealing the the bubble wrap hand. No, do you mm-hmm. do you see nothing but bubble wrap? Right. Okay. So obviously, we now know what bubble wrap is. Um, when this um, story was made, it was a very it probably difficult to, to believe, but it was a very new material. It wasn't known in households. Um, it's funny. I'm watching it, and I clearly know it's bubble wrap. Uh, painted green but at the same time I find it very easy to suspend my disbelief Um, I think it's a very good solution of going right okay you've got something which is uh, the human body and it's been transformed into a completely different thing so the skin would reflect what it's turning into but it it would also blister and peel yeah the bu- bubble wrap is actually a very quick solution. Obviously, if you were to make the story now, you would use you know uh, prosthetics and better makeup and so on. But as a quick solution, I think bubble wraps you know yeah. very good material to use. It. Um, I'm surprised it, it's not a more popular cosplay. <laughs> <laughs> actually, yeah, it's a good point because you could easily do it and do it quite cheaply. And uh, as I say, it's I find it very easy to yes, I'm watching it going that's clearly bubble wrap, but at the same time. Uh, uh, I'm going, but I know what it represents, and so I'm very, very. I find it very easy to make that leap and going. Well, it's 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 clear visualizing, blistering, transforming skin. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, what do you think when you're watching it? Um, I I get what you mean. You can suspend your disbelief because it doesn't actually look like a two minute job of bubble wrap and paint. Um, it, it mm. the, obviously it does look effective. It's just, it's just your mind can't not identify what it probably is. <laughs> yes, is... but that's the thing. It's as you say, it's not someone that's got some bubble wrap and sellotape and just stuck it around the hand and go, "Eh, that'll yeah. do." No, the, the, we've all you know, done that. Job. <laughs> we've all done that. Um, but I actually think because uh, later on, because it's it's clearly used for the giant grub, and I think it's very effective there. And then later on, when we see Noah, and half of him's now transformed, with his hands stuck in the air, and you've uh, and uh, sort of one half of his body <laughs> is covered in this stuff, and he's also got, you know the eye is starting, uh, 
the eye is starting to to form of the Wirren. That's really really effective, and then because it's starting to burst out the uh, stop burst out the uniform he's wearing. Mm, yeah. Yes, it's bubble wrapped eye green, but I think that's really really effective. So um, I don't find it I don't find it laughable. I know some people do, fair, fair enough, but I don't, and I, I think it uh, it's still I think it still effectively sells what it's trying to sell. Yeah. The Earth High Minister then plays a message from beyond the grave, welcoming back the sleepers. Uh, so Noah seems pretty conflicted at this stage um, because he's by himself um, listening to this message. Um, there's a lot of internal conflict with Noah um, mm-hmm. as the story goes on. Um, yeah, a bit of an internal struggle. Harry makes a remark to Sarah... I bet that did your female female chauvinistic heart a power of good. Fancy a member of the fair sex being top of the totem pole. There's a lot. There's a lot. There's a lot here that um, Sarah gets annoyed by <laughs> the story. Well, rightly so. But I mean, I think that that line works because I think certainly the way that uh, Ian Martyr, the actor, says it. He's yes. There's something about Harry's character. He's meant to be quite old-fashioned. But he he says it. He's saying this stuff with a smile. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's sexist, but you know, yeah. it's, uh, he doesn't really mean it. He's he's clearly just sort of like winding Sarah up, and you know, uh, fine. It's interesting though because uh, at this point, there'd been a couple of countries who had already had female leaders. Um, I'm not sure if Pakistan had at this point. No, I don't think it did. Israel certainly did. And one of the Scandinavian countries, I think. But there was a couple of countries who'd already had female leaders. Britain hadn't. But it was funny, we were just on the cusp of Margaret Thatcher, when this story was originally broadcast, we were just on the cusp of Margaret Thatcher um, about to become leader of the Conservative Party. Uh, I think at this point, you know, certainly with the unit stories, the idea was that, um, you know, during the, the, the Troughton... Pertwee and the early Tom Baker era, when they, when you know when Unit did pop up now and again, I think um, the idea was that they were supposed to be set maybe five years in the future at this point. Mm-hmm. And in fact, Pyramids of Mars clearly states that um, Sarah Jane's from 1980. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, no one would know that at the time, but it's you know we do now. Margaret Thatcher would be Prime Minister at that point. Um, but yeah, it's just. You know, just interesting from from that perspective, they were, you know, Britain was just on the, just on on the, the when the story was made, just on the cusp of of getting that change. Mm. So, obviously, if this story was broadcast or or made several months later than it was, that line wouldn't be in the story. No, maybe not. <laughs> yeah. yeah, shouldn't have been there at all since they're both from the eighties. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So Noah urgently urgently gets the message across to Vira to quickly revive everyone and get them back to Earth, away from the Wirren. So this is the this internal conflict I was talking about earlier. Um, mm-hmm. And he also tells her to take command. Um, so he clearly has this very strong will. But you know, so does the Wirren, and then it immediately takes back control of Noah. Mm. Mm. So it's a very effective scene, and I think um, the actor who plays Noah does it very, very well. That conflict because you're seeing him to- torn between um, Noah coming through and trying to get things right, and te- you know, telling uh, Vira what what she needs to do, 
But then you also got the point, as you said, where the Wirren is taking over. And that, that line that he says that they're in his mind. Which she then picks up on. Vira then goes, What does she what does he mean they're in his mind? Um I love this entire moment. I think it's very strong. So Well actually hang on, so, sorry Rob, I just want to go back to that point when um just that line about, you know, that uh you know, about having a female leader that we'll just be briefly talking about. Yeah. So, just to show... The final episode of The Ark in Space was originally broadcast on the 15th of February, 1975. Right? So, the... Uh, Margaret Thatcher became leader of the opposition, so the leader of the Conservative Party, on the 11th of February. It was it was that, you know, it was sort of that close. Anyway, I just thought it was interesting. Sorry, yeah. Rob. No, no. <laughs> That's cool. Cool fact. So as Vira and the Doctor team up, Harry and Sarah stay behind to revive everyone. Mm-hmm. Vira and the Doctor open a door to the corridor to reveal Noah. It's on the curved corridor that we love, that cool set. Um, mm-hmm. And now, as you said earlier, he's now half transformed into the Wirren. Um Turned into... It's not the same as... He doesn't become this um, this larvae like uh, like Dunes did. He becomes like a human form larvae. So it's it's a, it's different to the one we had crawling around, isn't it? Because he's very much. It is, but th- but then that is actually explaining the story. So the so um, the queen impregnated the larvae of the Wirren inside June. Okay. So then they, so, so they basically eating him in, for, uh, eating him from the inside out and consuming everything. Yeah. So that's the, sort of the natural state of of the Wirren. So which which you then get that giant grub thing. Yeah. The giant grub thing then uh, interacts with Noah by um, sliming him, which then physically transforms him. Mm. So, so, so the, the story does explain why there are those two differences. Yeah. I wonder which is the worst way to go. Slimed or um, have the things put in you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I suppose with at least with June, he was you know he was unconscious when it happened. Yeah, you know he was in cryogenically frozen. So hopefully yeah, it wasn't. That's a, that's a better way to I mean, they're both. Yeah. So, but if you had, yeah, I mean, they're both. <laughs> yeah, oh, I don't know. They're both. <laughs> they're both deeply, deeply unpleasant. Um, oh, I don't know. Mm. I think. If I had to choose, oh, I don't know. Probably the physical transformation. Maybe, yeah. But then your mind goes. Hmm. Maybe that's for yeah, the best. Yeah, I know that's unpleasant. <laughs> so, yeah. um, <laughs> so it's cool how um, when Noah's transforming, it's also transforming his clothes as well, rather than under mm. his clothes, which is interesting. Um, virus swiftly shuts the door. Um, I think Noah's gun drops to the floor. On the corridor. Uh, and then she reveals... She, I was going to say soul bonded there. No, she was pair bonded with him um, mm-hmm. for their life on the earth. Um, yeah. So I think she she does feel something about that. I don't think it's it was a love in the traditional sense. Because they were just kind of paired together as this ideal couple. Um, so mm-hmm. she doesn't. She doesn't seem to convey this great heartbreak or loss. Um, 
But there, there, there are. So, I know what you mean. But there are moments of tenderness mm. when she revives Noah to be, to begin with. Um, you know how she sort of, like she gently caresses his face, and so there's clearly um, some sort of connection and fondness there. But I know what you mean. It's not a romantic relationship in the traditional sense. Yeah. So Harry examines the dead women, and the doctor suspects that they must live in space. I was wondering, how do you think they travel through space? Because later on it's revealed that they come from Andromeda. Um, In reality, Andromeda would be one of our neighbouring galaxies. (laughs) And they can only survive for a few years in space without oxygen. So they must have some kind of um, fast means of travel. Mm -hmm. I've just got this image from... um... It, I'm about what I'm about to say sounds incredibly comic, but in my mind, it looks fantastic. Uh, I've just got this image of him just rapidly <laughs> floating through space, and somehow they're able to just move incredibly fast. I don't think they. I, I, I can't see them traveling via mechanical means. No, um... and it's because it's interesting because this idea because when you start to get the backstory of all this and then Vira finds out that you know that the, um, their star pioneers were able to to go to Andromeda yeah. um, Noah who now has the mind and race memory of the Wirren as the doctor puts it is talking about how um, they originally just used to feed on cattle yeah um, um, mindless herbivores I think he said Yes, yeah, yeah, that's exactly what he says. And it's only with their first interaction with humans um, that they that they then they must have this natural biological ability of a, you know uh, getting um, what the memories of I guess the creatures that they're devouring. But it, it, that only starts to become a real problem for us when they first encounter humans. Yes. What if they commandeered a ship from? the humans in Andromeda and took it to come back to Earth. Yeah, that's a good point, possibly. That would be a good fit. Yeah, because... Yes, because later on it is established that Noah, even as a Wirren, is able to understand certain elements of, of the rocketry and, and do or not do what is needed. So, yeah, that's possible. Yes. So the doctor hooks up some kind of Wirren membrane and they see they're able to see what the Wirren last seen um before it died. Mm-hmm. Um They have l- little look, so the doctor decides to hook it up to his own cerebral cortex, which uh, can be quite dangerous. The doctor views the women the Wirren's memories. Um it seems it was shocked by the robot guard. And then it cut the wires in the control room, and then we saw it go to June. So all these little pieces of the puzzle fit together now. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've and this drone guard ceiling guard thing, um, pretty much killed the Wirren, but it had this really strong will to survive. Um, mm-hmm. which is kind of cool. So. Harry and Libri have a bit of a battle in the hallway with Noah. A bit of a good yep. battle. And uh, the Wirren lobby tries to break into the room with the Doctor. Um, 
which is a cool scene in the doorway when it's stood up, uh, when it breaks the door open, the doctor tells them to aim lower, so they they shoot it and it retreats into the vent. Um, mm-hmm. This was quite was quite big, wasn't it? This lobby thing. Um, yeah, yeah, it was yeah. huge. Um, the doctor's a bit confused as to why they're attacking now and not when they're fully grown. Um, so they've obviously got a bit of a plan. Uh, then they decide to elect electrify the infrastructure and um, more of these drone guard things would have been handy right now never mind so he wonders could there be something that june didn't know in order to get one head a step of the word so this is quite a smart move because they're they're using june's memories and uh then the doctor remembers that the trans mass is reversible harry and Libri travel first um, but then Sarah's going to go next on the transmat, but then there's no more power. Uh, there's also no oxygen, and the Wirren don't need oxygen in their people stage, so they'll not be affected by this. So the Doctor heads down to the solar stack room, and uh, he finds some cocoons, uh, and then he's about to turn on the power, and he's confronted by Noah, making his final horrific transformation. <laughs> but... Um, there's another question here of how effective was this because we had we had a shot of the Wirren from the back and then we had a front shot of the final stage with Noah and then it just crossfades with the, the fully formed Wirren, um, mm. which is kind of good, but it's also not. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, it's one of those things where uh, the idea is better than the execution, but I don't, I don't, but it's just due to the limitations of the technology at the time. Um, I mean, it's not so awful as to, to go, you know, to make you laugh your head off. Um, it's just one of those things where you're watching it and you know exactly how they've done it. As you say, they've just crossed, faded two images over the, uh, over the other and then faded the image of the actor out and then replaced it with the image of the Wirren. Um, as you say, it's, it's, it's not, it's not bad, but it's, it's not great. It's, um... Again, I don't mind it. It doesn't really, it doesn't uh, detract me from the story. But yeah, it. Um, In hindsight, it's just maybe they shouldn't have done that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, I think at that point in the story, you could actually argue that it wasn't needed because the we've talks seen the physical anyway, transformation. Yeah. There, there is a re- reveal uh, that it's Noah because it talks to them moments later. Maybe that would have been yeah. horrific. Like, wait, that's Noah. Yeah. Yeah, and I think I mean you could actually argue well maybe it wouldn't have been a fantastic cliffhanger, but I think it would have been perfectly functional. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the the doctor's there, and then you've just got you know the the uh, the uh, the Wirren, Noah Noah Wirren, um advancing towards him, mm. and then just have that as the cliffhanger. Yeah. Yes, it's arguably not incredibly imaginative, um, but perfectly functionary. But it would have worked. Um, so maybe just have used that because at that point we already know that Noah has has gone through this transformation and it's just like right now it's complete. So you could actually argue, yeah, maybe that shot wasn't necessary. So on episode four, the final episode in this serial. So as the Noah we're in approaches the Doctor, it's shot in the back by Vira and this gives the Doctor a chance to slip by. The we're in then speaks to them. Um, He tells Vira to escape well she can showing that there's still there's still a part of Noah in there still this conflict yes, inside uh-huh. um, 
the Wirren then explains of how it isn't simply survival, but this is revenge. He says that, yes, that yeah, long yeah. ago humans came to the old lands for thousands of years. The Wirren, for, sorry, for a thousand years, the Wirren fought them. Um, he says, but you humans destroyed the breeding colonies. Um, the Wirren were then driven from Andromeda. Is this also where the Santarans are in the following story? Doesn't he speak to the Santaran fleet in Andromeda? We'll have to check that out next week. <laughs> yes, we yeah. will. Um, I'm not sure. It doesn't ring a bell, but it, it is a possibility. Yeah, yeah I'll, 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 I'll keep an ear out. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it's it's not survival, it's revenge. Um, yeah. So the doctor asks why they need to breed here and not find somewhere else. Um, and the woman explains that they, yeah, they they used to use senseless herbivores as hosts, but now now they want to use humans to inherit their knowledge and become mm. an advanced technological species. Um, yeah. So in one generation, they could actually be there at that stage. So the Wirren cocoons begin to hatch. Um, so everyone, everyone retreats. Oh, and the Doctor offers everyone a jelly baby. So since the Wirren are coming for them, Harry says that they might as well be off, <laughs> so he's happy to leave now, and that there's plenty of room for everyone on the TARDIS. Harry doesn't know that this never happens on this show. But of course, Vyra has no intention to leave, and so everyone's resigned to stay and help. The Doctor has an idea to electrify the bulkheads of the cryogenic chamber, but the problem is there's no power and no effective way to provide the power. So, mm-hmm. Actually, just one quick thing, because uh, this scene does have one of my favourite lines in it. It's got, I, think, I mean, it's a good line in terms of how it's written. I think it's got more to do with how Tom Baker performs it. It's just a little bit earlier on than this, where he's, you know, it's just after that point where uh, the doctor says, you know, uh, Vira has no intention of uh, leaving, and so neither have we. And he just goes, um, it's just his line about going, uh, you, you, using the human race as a, no, using the humans as a race of su- surrogates or something like that. It's the most immoral suggestion I've heard in centuries. I just love the line. I love how Tom Baker says it. I just think it's great. Yeah, cool delivery. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, sorry, Rob. Yeah, you were talking about the doctor then has the plan oh, of yes. uh, electrifying the bulkheads. Yes, but there's no effective way to provide the power. So, Sarah has an idea, but unfortunately, she struggles to be listened to, um, Mm. which is nothing new. Uh, And when they give her a chance to speak, she suggests that they can use the power uh, from the transport ship, which is a great idea, as it has four Granovax turbines. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yes. Those old things. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Which can generate four times as power than the Ark. Yeah. Well, as I'd expect so, because the Ark just needs life support, but um, the transport mm. needs those, needs those four Gravenach turbines to <laughs> enter and leave <laughs> the atmosphere lots. So, um, the only problem is they need to run a cable. They need a very, very small person to run the cable through the power conduits. Um, Harry remarks, it's hardly a job for you, Sarah. <laughs> so, while the doctor's wiring up the cryogenic chamber, a Wirren enters the adjacent room, 
Um, so the Doctor decides to hide in one of the chambers, which is very clever. Sarah enters the conduit, um, and while the while the others are on the transport ship, it's very kind of cramped inside the conduits. And there's a moment where one of the women kind of sees her through the vent, so she's she's quite scared there. So she eventually gets stuck, and the Doctor kind of coaxes her out by telling her how useless she is. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I don't think it's a great scene. I, I just, yeah, it's a lovely moment, just the Doctor coaxing her, but it's all very, you know, yeah. it's it's all playfully done. And I love how Tom Baker and Elizabeth Sladen uh, played as well. So Sarah goes to close the door to the chamber once she's out. Um, and she just manages to close it in time as there's a woman coming towards her. Um, but it gets electrified by the door and, uh, and retreats. Mm-hmm. So then one of them grabs Sarah by the legs from the open vent, so she's not having much luck. But the doctor manages to jab a live cable in its face. <laughs> Into its oh eye. God. Does it retreat or yeah. does it die? I'm sure it runs away. Yeah, I think it just uh, just seems to... I don't know, I think it probably just retreats and then shrivels up and dies in the yeah. vent. That's how I, <laughs> how I picture it. You know, very grim. So the women turn on the power... And Noah sends a message over the comms to Vira. He says he let them go free if they let him have all the sleepers. Um, mm. But the Doctor propo- proposes that Noah leads the swarm into space instead. Mm. Um, so the swarm begins to move across the outside of the station towards the shuttle. Um, so the Doctor tells them to just set the shuttle for automatic takeoff. Um, Rogan and the Doctor begin to release the locks beneath the shuttle and um, the Doctor seemingly maybe sacrificing himself um, to release the final lock but Logan knocks him out and sacrifices himself instead um, the shuttle departs from the Ark um, I like this scene because it's complete silence in space mm-hmm. yeah. Viren, Harry and Sarah uh, presume that Rogan and the Doctor both died, but then the Doctor enters the room. So, uh, yeah, no problems there. Um, and the Doctor says they're alive because of Rogan's bravery and perhaps because of something else. That Noah mm-hmm. may have le- led the swarm into the shuttle intentionally. And then they get a message from Noah over the comms to Vira with a final farewell before the shuttle blows. Yeah, the humanity did prevail. And uh, even though Noah was fully transformed, it wasn't It wasn't simply his, his inherited memories. The, the human spirit lived on. Yes, yeah. yeah. Cool. Which, uh, which even takes the Doctor by surprise. Yeah. But uh, it's, a, it's a very powerful moment and uh, quite touching. Yeah. Vira now faces a new challenge. Um she'll have to rely on the transmat rather than the shuttle um, to get all the thousands of people back to Earth. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, there's a problem with the transmat, so the Doctor offered us to kind of nip down to Earth and check it out. So, as the part ways, the Doctor gives various jelly babies and they're off. Yep. Uh, so that's the arc in space. Uh, we did have one response this week. Only the one. 
<laughs> okay. Um, Better than none. Yep. Uh, Jason Thompson says, um, it's the one that hooked me on the show thanks to a Target novelization in the school library and an almost unbelievable coincidence. Um, I did reply, I said, did you enjoy the Target novelization or the TV story? And he says, it's hard to say. I love them both, but they're, they are different media, so not sure I can compare. But hearing the theme tune coming from a classroom one wet lunchtime shortly after reading it um, and poking my head in just in time to see the words The Ark in Space Part 1 pop up was amazing. So good memories. Oh, so that's the coincidence he's talking about. Yeah, yeah. That, 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 that sounds really cool. Um, Ian Marta wrote the Target novelization. Yes. And he, I think he majored in uh, English um, at university. And um, he was very analytical. And apparently, from what I can gather, is he, he did a phenomenally good job writing the novelization. Uh, and even ironed out some of the sort of the, the logical issues with it. So, for example, the way that the story ends, which is that you know, how they all transport down to Earth, and it just so happens that there are three people who need to transport down, and yet the transporter has three spaces. Um, for what I can understand, I haven't read it, but I, I would love to at some point to see how, how good a job he did. Um, he... Um, you know, he, he irons out all these problems and uh, so it becomes a fully fledged, logical, but very gripping story. We'll get on to our opinion of the story. Um, we did ask every, everyone what did they think. Um, was the story good, average or bad? And of the responses we had, 87 good, 8.7 average, 4.3 said it was bad. Those people are morons. Sorry, yes. people. But um, <laughs> I love this story. It's one of my all-time favourites. In fact, when I was getting into Doctor Who and uh, was getting to the point of discovering the new Doctors, you know, new to me, you know, discovering the, uh, the different Doctors, I loved them all, apart from one. And that one, funnily enough, was Tom Baker. Um, I just found him too alien, irritating. I... I Cannot for the life of me remember what the first Tom Baker story I watched was. Um, but then uh, my father one day, as a surprise, he bought me um, The Ark in Space for £5.95. It was second hand. It was in the green market, Rob. Oh, yes. You know, the, uh, the, you, that you know place, which one it was. I know the place. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that place. Yeah, yeah. Um, he bought it there and it was, it was a nice surprise. I loved it because it was a Tom Baker story and I was very appreciative because my father bought me a present. But at the same time, I was like, but it's a Tom Baker story. I don't got it either. But anyway, obviously, got home, watched it. And I went, it's it's the story that, one, made me go, Tom Baker's bloody brilliant. I don't know what my problem was. Um, so it got me into loving his Doctor. But I loved the story. And I still do. I think it holds up really, really well. Yes, as we said, that, that, that you know, there's certain things of going, it's bloody bubble wrap. But I haven't got a problem with that. I think the the design of the story is really good. I love the cast. And at the end of it, it just comes down to the story. It's an amazing story. Um, written by Robert Holmes. Incredibly, incredibly quickly. Because I think they had this idea that they wanted a story in space. Set on an arc. They had one writer who attempted it. It didn't work. 
they had another uh, writer, John Lucarotti, I think. Oh, who didn't who, work? Who wrote the Aztecs? Yes, uh, a couple of others as well. Didn't he write Marco Polo? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so Robert Holmes had to do a page one rewrite, very very close to the story about to enter production, and he does an amazing job. Um, I think, I think it's structured very well. The very first episode only has the regulars in it. Even if you look at how that that one episode is structured, it's it's amazing. You have a way of getting you into the story, which is you know you're seeing the arc, the wonderful model shot. You're seeing the viewpoint of that uh, this story's monster, and then that's it. Then the Doctor and the, the TARDIS team arrive. You've got that whole mystery. Things slowly start to reveal themselves. You know, something something affected... Uh, something cut the wires. Something st- you know, stopped this working. Um, there's, a, there's a monster and a cut. And you start to slowly piece everything together and starts to reveal himself. And then the idea of the monster is generally horrific. I mean, a lot of people have said this was the movie Alien before, you know, years before Alien. In some respects, I think that's true. It's just a wonderfully imaginative story, structured very, very well. I just love it. I think it. so... I just think it's great. Yeah, I also agree with you. Yeah, good story. So, thank you for listening. If you've got this far... um, Please remember to follow us on social. We're on facebook.com slash cloisterbell, on Twitter at podcastbell. We're on Instagram. Is it just cloisterbell? Oh, isn't it uh, cloister underscore bell? Cloister underscore bell, thank you. Um, All of which can be found on cloisterbellpodcast.com, as well as some other great fourth doctor podcasts. And a brilliant fourth Doctor word search with lots of season 12 era words to find. <laughs> um, you can also help support the podcast on patreon.com slash cloisterbell uh, where you can get early access and more. And please get in touch with us. We'd love to hear your opinions on any of our future reviews. Um, and of course, we will be continuing with our reviews of season 12. Uh, so, Liam, would you like to announce what next week's story is? Uh, yes, yeah, so obviously people who are familiar with Doctor Who will, will know because we're obviously doing the stories in order. So the next one is the two-parter, the... I was going to say the Santoran stratagem. <laughs> That's completely wrong. It's a Santoran experiment. Brilliant. Uh, we have previously talked about this a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. Maybe 2018, 2019, well, 2019 probably early then. Um, but... Um, of course, we're going to revisit it and uh, give it another go. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, uh, but if you can't wait, you have got that original podcast, but yeah, uh, yeah we will be rediscussing it. Yeah. Cool. Uh, so thanks for listening. Thanks to Jason Thompson for giving us his great memories on the Arkham space. Thanks to everyone who has um, engaged in our polls. And we'll see you next week. <laughs> Disaster. The Cloister Bell? Yes. What's that? 
Well, it's a sort of communications device reserved for wild catastrophes and sudden calls to man the battle stations. That's the cloister bell. Don't worry about that for now. It's not really terribly significant. The cloister bell? Oh, no.